1: Look it up. Listen, I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yer Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week, we are joined by Jesse Daniels, who is a professor of sociology at Hunter College and the author of the recent book, Nice White Ladies. Thanks for joining us, Jesse. Hey,
0: it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: I guess just to begin with, the, the book is a this really interesting look at uh, the ways in which uh, white women interact with the world around them. It's also sort of a very deeply personal work. Could you tell us a little bit about the impetus for writing it?
0: Yeah, I mean, this book in many ways feels like it's been in process for I don't know at least a decade, maybe maybe a couple of decades. I when I did my early work on white supremacists in printed publications, that was my dissertation. It was my first book called "White Lies" that came out in 1997. Part of what I was looking at was the rhetoric and the ideology of white supremacist extremist groups in the mostly in the U.S. And one of you know one of the things I came across in that was the way that they gendered each of the groups that they were most, you know, animated about. So I had expected to go into that finding a whole laundry list of groups they hated and, and sort of what they thought about each group. But what I found was really this kind of triumvirate, this triangle of three different groups that they were most interested in. And not now, perhaps not surprisingly, they're most interested in themselves. So there was a lot of talk about white people, but that talk was very, very gendered. So I looked at, you know, what they said about white men and what they said about white women. So that, you know, in in many ways is kind of the origin story of this book, but I followed that with cyber racism, which looked at how those groups had and had not moved online. And, and again, I was, I was really struck by how you know, fascinated they were by their own their own identity and their own position in the world. And at Stormfront, which as you know is for a long time was the largest white supremacist portal online, there was a there was a whole section of that called the Ladies Only Forum, where I spent far too much time. And part of what I found there was that, you know, the discussion they were having at the Ladies Only Forum on Stormfront could have been a discussion happening at a now national organization for women move um, organization meeting th- because they sounded just like liberal feminists. You know, they were a hundred percent for equal pay for equal work. And, you know, they, th- they kind of thought men were a little silly and they made fun of them and, th- and they were mostly for abortion rights, but they thought, of course, the wrong people were having abortions. Right. So, so that it was sort of the impetus for thinking about this book. And I, I started writing about white feminists online. I wanted to do a book about feminist blogging. And the more I dug into it, I just thought, wow, this is really this is really deeply problematic. Even the even the well intentioned good liberal white women who were doing some of the early, you know, blogging online were falling into this kind of trap of only thinking about gender. And and part of what I argued in the cyber racism book is that if you don't have a critical analysis of race at the center of your feminism, then it inevitably maps on to white supremacy, right? Because then the goal is just white women being equal to white men. And that's far too low a bar. So that was sort of the impetus of this. And then more recently, I think it was about 2014 or 15, I started doing a series of blog posts at uh, racism review, which I started with Joe Fagan just sort of kind of collecting these thoughts, things I was seeing about white feminists online and sort of white women. And and then that led to a series of uh, a column I did at Huffington Post for a while. And that's when I started thinking, by then I had this series of blog posts and these columns at Huffington Post, and it was, I don't know, around forty or 50,000 words. It's like, that's most of a book. So that's when I started thinking I should really, you know, craft this into a longer narrative. In another sort of set of writing that I've been doing for a long time, I've been working on a memoir for, I don't know, forever, it seems like, and that is this really deeply personal writing. And so I got really interested in how to blend genres, you know, so I wanted to write something that wasn't just for other academics, I wanted to reach a wider audience. So this book, Nice White Ladies, ended up being this Blend really of of memoir of sociology of sort of secondary reporting and then analysis you know so it's um, I'm I'm actually pleased with the writing in the book I think it um, I think it's some of the best writing I've done yet
2: Jesse in terms of the book's title Nice White Ladies is exploring this kind of history and attempting to understand the intersections between uh, gender and white supremacy are those the sorts of things that nice white ladies do and you know what do you mean by nice white lady
0: yeah it's a great question so the title of the book is really the 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 big title of the book nice white ladies is really a kind of play on words and it's meant to challenge each of those three words it's it's meant to make us think about what it means to be nice what it means to be white and what it means to be a lady and I, and i think that together certainly in my own upbringing my own story of growing up in Texas and living in New York City that combination of being a nice white lady is really integral to the way that that many of us are are raised and taught and internalize our identity and and we think that we are mistaken but we think that that's enough that if we are just nice white ladies, then we're not doing anything wrong. And part of what I want to challenge people in that identity space and anyone who interacts with people in that identity space is that it's actually harmful and corrosive, that very identity construction of nice white ladies, because it does a couple of things. I think of it in some ways as a kind of technology that enables certain behaviors and, and affordances, if you will. So being a nice white lady, I can, for example, call 911, which is our emergency, uh, universal emergency alert number here in the U.S. I can call 911 and have the person on the other end of that call assume that I am telling the truth and assume that I am in need of assistance from the police and the police state and they will send someone to my door based on that call, assuming that I am not the problem, right? And that's a that's a particular kind of affordance, if you will. It's a particular kind of thing that being a nice white lady allows and enables. And that you know, just calling nine one one, you know, is a is in a way an act of violence, or it's an it's an act that invites violence on people of color we have stories almost every day here in the US of someone calling 911 and you know even calling and there was just a story about a, a black woman who called 911 for help with her black son who was having a mental health crisis the police arrived and and within seconds killed her son you know that kind of violence is is at the end of every nine one one call. The potential for that kind of violence is at the end of every nine one one call. And for many of us who are nice white ladies, we see that as a as you know, kind of our birthright and a and an access to safety and security. But it's really not. It's it's access to a kind of violence that gets visited on people who usually don't look like us, you know. And we have to we have to consider what that the power of being a nice white lady does in this culture.
1: Uh, Part of your analysis examines uh, different facets of white feminism. I was wondering, could you speak to the, the sort of three different categories that you've found?
0: I talk about white feminism and part of the problem in it as gender only feminism. And, and what I mean by that is, is sort of what I was saying earlier, that if you don't have a critical analysis of race at the center of your feminism, that it, and it ends up mapping on to these other kinds of feminism. So, the, so there are three different, and that comes out in all sorts of different ways. And I, I come up with these three different categories that I think may sound academic at first, but I think people will recognize them based on the examples that I use. So the first one I talk about is um, vagina feminism, which if you followed any of the work of the writer formerly known as Eve Ensler, she just goes by V now, but some of Eve Ensler's work, especially in the Vagina Monologues, is, has really trained an entire generation or two of feminists to think of this kind of bio essentialist conception of feminism that that leads to things like the trans exclusionary radical feminist view, which is you know violence to trans people. But it also feeds into a kind of Global racial superiority, where the it, if you look specifically at the vagina monologues, part of what part of what Eve Ensler is doing there is the the people who have give voice to rape and sexual assault are all people of color or people from other countries, and the the people who have voice that is that is untouched by that sexual violence are the white women in the piece, the cisgender white women. The second type of, uh, white feminism I talk about is corporate feminism and this, I really tie to Sheryl Sandberg, who's the chief operating officer at Facebook. And, you know, she has this quite popular and famous book called Lean In. And it's really about how, you know, mostly upper middle class white women can, you know, assert themselves in the boardroom. And that is really not, um, Feminism for everyone. And then the third type of feminism that I talk about is carceral feminism. And carceral is just, you know, the academic word that we use to talk about prisons and jails and the whole sort of mechanism of the state that locks people up. And there is a real version, a very strong and popular version of, of white feminism that a lot of people who are not white also subscribe to, where the the kind of ultimate uh, fulfillment of feminist goals is to lock people up. So, so here in the U S we have this whole um, television franchise called law and order, which I'm sure has made it to Australia as well. And that to me is kind of the apotheosis, if that's the right way to say that word, it's sort of the pinnacle of white carceral feminism. You know, the idea that the people who are a threat, to women are mostly black and brown men. And the solution to the threat is to lock them up. And part of what law and order does as a franchise is it, it animates that story with white women who are, who are police, who are DAs, who are prosecutors, who are judges. That that kind of law and order, you know, television series version of white feminism, I think is, is part of what, um, animates what, um, Alyssa Phipps calls the, you know, the the feminism as war machine, and you know, and we see that in people like Hillary Clinton, and then the television version of that, which is Madam Secretary with Taita Leone, you know, in her fabulous pantsuits, and we're all supposed to cheer because you know they're locking up people or sending drones to brown people on the other side of the of the globe, and and that is just not what. You know, we want when we talk about intersectional or liberatory feminism for everyone.
1: Just on Eve Ensler, I did. I don't know if "enjoys" the right word. I, th- I thought she was very clever <laughs> the, the way that uh, after being criticised over the whole V Day thing, that mm-hmm. she's she lent into the to the V brand.
0: Yes. Yeah, I mean, the you know, listen, I, I am all for people, especially you know femme and women identify people who want to change their name to get away from the sexual predators in our own families. I myself changed my name. And it's something I talk about in the book to to do the exact same kind of move. But, you know, there's something a little suspicious about Eve Ensler changing her name to V because it because it's such a it's such a perfect kind of brand enclosure <laughs> for her. I mean, it's a tie-in, right, to all of her cultural products around V-Day and all that. And I mean, the other thing to say about V-Day is when she tried to uh, and did take that into Canada. You know, part of what uh, part of what happened there was that there was a real pushback from indigenous feminists in Canada who already had you know, ceremonies and rituals and, and celebrations or or commemorations, I think is a better word, around February 14th, which is the date that she chose to do the V-Day thing. And, and she just refused to meet with Indigenous feminists in Canada and refused to change her sort of corporate branding around that, uh, around her efforts and, you know, and the whole one billion rising. It's a very northern hemisphere, white global feminist takeover of some of the indigenous practices that have already, um, already been happening among uh, native uh, feminists. And she just seemed impervious to that, not only impervious, but also Fragile, you know, when it when she received criticism from people like Lauren Chief Elk, who who was very um, vocal in her criticism of, of then Eve Ensler, and you know, and Eve Ensler basically cried <laughs> and said, "I, you know, I just have good intentions, and so that should be enough." And it, it's really not. I mean, we're we're well past the time when simply having good intentions is enough.
1: One of the nice white ladies that you write about in the book is Rebecca Mercer. I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about who she is and why do you hate to see a girl boss winning?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, Rebecca Mercer is the middle daughter of Robert Mercer, who is a hedge fund billionaire. And their whole family is very um, far right and... And Rebecca Mercer has sort of put it upon herself and sort of been designated by the family to be the kind of public face for their political funding and political uh, machinations here in the US. And, And more broadly, actually, she's gone beyond the US to do some of this. But part of what Rebecca Mercer, who is, you know, very, very wealthy has done, as she's put millions, tens of millions of dollars into various kinds of far-right political campaigns and far-right uh, media outlets. So uh, this part of her funding began with um, underwriting Steve Bannon's Breitbart News, which he referred to at one point as the platform for the alt-right, and the alt-right is just a new branded version of white supremacy and white nationalism. And it's not that I... <laughs> I hate to see a girl boss winning. It's just that the the girl boss rhetoric is really something that's that's deeply entwined with with white feminism, and it 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 doesn't have any kind of political connotation that um, connects to you know intersectional or liberatory feminism. What a white girl boss uh, feminism does is it it heralds any kind of career accomplishment of any white woman as some kind of feminist victory. And it's just, it it really sets up a kind of situation where all sorts of political nefarious activities can be presumably seen as feminist victories. And just one example recently from France was the you know, the victory of Marine Le Pen, right, who has a long history of advocating white nationalism in France. And and she recently won in the elections there, won a, a large majority in, in the parliamentary elections. And that, I think, is a real, in some ways, is the Achilles heel of white feminism. If we, if we say, if we take the sort of underlying assumption of white feminism that, you know, all career victories for all women are uh, feminist victories, then we have no uh, basis on which to criticize someone like Rebecca Mercer or Marine Le Pen, or here, you know, someone like Ivanka Trump, right? The daughter of the former president who uh, I, I have said for a long time now is a real, is a real danger, right? Because she, she could in her kind of, Hyper groomed, Instagram ready appearance. Say the same kinds of things that her father says, and people would applaud and think there's no there's no danger here. There's there, this is all fine. And there's a wide swath of feminists who would see it as a feminist victory, or at the very least, have a hard time understanding how to cr- criticize it without um, falling into misogyny and and anti feminist backlash. you know, And I, th- I think that's the real danger in that kind of girl boss feminism, if you will.
1: I was sort of taken aback in, by the stat in the book that four of the top five military contractors, companies in the United States uh, have women CEOs. It felt like the patriarchy had taken their eyes off the road a little bit there.
0: <laughs> well, not really. I mean, the the patriarchy hasn't taken their eyes off the road because those white women are are doing the bidding of white capitalist patriarchy. You know, it's the it's the same kind of shtick that Amy Coney Barrett, who's the one of the recent um, Supreme Court justices and a conservative woman who, you know, has has been behind the upending of the right to. An abortion here in the U.S. and there and there's a whole. I've written a little bit about this, but there's a whole cadre of white women who have been behind the repeal of Roe v. Wade, which was our Supreme Court decision that uh, that allowed you know that allowed for the right to an abortion. And it, you know, and so it's not that white women don't do the bidding of patriarchy; they very much do, and that's part of the the challenge for for white feminists because they have no way to analyze that except in these, you know, tiresome, you know, hot takes that say things like, why are these women voting against their own interests? Well, they're not voting against their own interests when they vote for, you know, the Republican party here or the Tories in Britain. Uh, it's, it's that their interest is in whiteness. I mean, that's, that's the interest that they're voting for. And so, So that's really one of the key ideas that I want to get across in the book, that we have to stop looking at these women as voting against their own interests but see them as really advancing the interests of whiteness and white supremacy.
2: Another figure that's emerged recently is, well, the figure of the the Karen under Trump. At the same time, as I think you also note in your book, the Black Lives Matter movement has witnessed the participation by thousands of um, young white women in support of racial justice and against police brutality. What do you think, if anything, these two figures or moments say about the situation of white feminists under Trump and in 2022?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think <laughs> I was just listening to, you know, uh, Beyonce's album just dropped today and there's a there's a line, I don't know which track it's on, but there's a line in the back of in one of the songs about it. Karen just turned into a terrorist. And I I think that that's, um, I think that's an apt description in some ways. Yeah. I mean, there, there is, there is this kind of tension. I don't mean to, to characterize all white women as being Karens. That's certainly not my, not not my purpose and not my point. There are lots of white women who have been out in the streets, certainly in the summer of 2020 marching for black lives. But I think that there is a way in which the white women who were marching in 2020 were were brand new in some way to the struggle for for racial justice and there is still at the same time and and constantly the possibility to move back and forth between those two so it's quite you know possible that a white woman who marched in the summer of 2020 for Black Lives Matter, and who was outraged at the police killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, and who saw those as deeply wrong, could then go back home to her all-white suburban enclave and see a Black person walking through the neighborhood and wonder to herself, should I call 911 now? You know, one of the most frequent questions that I get from from white women after they've read the book or they've heard me give a talk about it is they will come up to me not not ask this in the Q and A of the event or anything, but they will ask me sort of sort of voce, well, well, could I still call the manager about X, Y, or Z? Is it still okay to do this or that? And so and part of what is so fascinating to me about that, about that question or that line of questioning from my white women readers or interlocutors is that it suggests, you know, this dual position that we have, right? We can march for Black lives, but we never stop being nice white ladies who also have access to 911 and someone will believe us when we call. You know, I mean, one of the things I point out in the book, and I, I put myself in this as well. One of the things I say in the book, you know, is that, when I walk into a room and people don't know who I am, they just assume I'm a nice white lady like anyone else. I was just on a call with someone the other day in my day job as professor at Hunter College. And it was a student who was like, Yeah, oh, I, w- I just wanted to talk to you just a nice white lady. And he said it not knowing this book I'd written, but it was just kind of a throwaway line, you know, and he was, he was being polite actually. And, and it's that tension that I want to, to draw people's focus to, right? That we have this kind of dual position where we are very definitely the target of the patriarchy and of misogyny. There are real serious bad actors who want to hurt women, including white women. And yet we are not only and exclusively victims of the patriarchy. We are also accomplices, complicit and actors who with our full agency as human beings take action to reproduce white supremacy, whether it's in our families, our work, the neighborhoods we choose to live in, um, the phone calls that we make, we are, we are both, and we are both victims of patriarchy and we are perpetrators of white supremacy and that's structural and and part of what I'm trying to call on my fellow white women to do is to recognize our position in that structure and to reject reproducing white supremacy where wherever and whenever we can.
1: Uh, sp- speaking of Karen's becoming terrorists, uh, you recently wrote an article about Ginny Thomas, the wife of Ooh. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about her involvement in the? the coup attempt and uh, how sh- how does she fit into the mold
0: of nice white lady? Yeah, thanks for that question. Jenny Thomas, uh, Virginia Thomas, she goes by Jenny, is the wife of Clarence Thomas who is a sitting Supreme Court justice and Jenny is white and Clarence Thomas, her husband, is black and they have a kind of, <laughs> call it the interracial dynamic duo thing going on and and Clarence Thomas since his um appointment to the high court in 1991 has been a real uh, conservative voice on the on the court and has done the bidding of the far right in a lot of ways and he was among the justices that voted to overturn Roe v Wade so that's that's his political stance and Jenny Thomas has played this kind of behind the scenes role for 30 years in politics in Washington DC and in the run up to the 2020 election, she like many on the far right were very invested in keeping Donald Trump in power. And part of her role in the insurrection that we're finding from reported pieces, this all, this has all been public. So this is not news that I'm breaking, but it's, but there are dots that I'm connecting in this uh, recent piece that I, I wrote for Dane magazine. Um, Part of what Jenny Thomas did in the run up to the 2020 election is that in her role on the board of something called the Council for National Policy, which is a kind of sort of a secretive DC, both think tank and policy organization, they try to influence policy, but they also try to seed uh, right wing media with talking points. And part of what they did in November of 2020 was after the election, send out a call to their members. It's about 400 people who are very well placed in politics here in the U S and say, what do we do now that it appears that Donald Trump has lost the election? And part of what they did was they, they wanted their members to reach out to um, conservative politicians in swing states to see if they would reverse their endorsement of the win of Joe Biden. And they also were the, among the first, I think this is where this started. They were among the first to float this idea of putting up alternate. They I mean, originally said fake electors and somebody said we should call it alternate instead, but putting up electors who were not the ones elected uh, by the people. We have this very Byzantine and Undemocratic system here called the Electoral College. And so when they're talking about electors, they're talking about these people in the Electoral College. And basically, in what the what the CNP, this organization that Jenny Thomas was part of, was suggesting was that instead of the duly elected electors, that they put forward a fake group of electors that would vote for Trump instead of Biden, and thereby create this kind of confusion. And then it would go to the Supreme Court. So basically, you know, and the Supreme Court now is stacked with conservatives. So it was a it was a kind of very um, internecine sort of complicated plot to try and reverse the outcome of the election, which the conservatives didn't like. Um, and it appears that Jenny Thomas was really an architect of this plan, which failed, fortunately. But the question that i I still have is whether or not she'll be held to account for her role in the attempted coup. There's a long history, and part of you know, the main point of the book is there's this long history of white women who've been, you know, actively involved in in violence and then never held to account for it, going back to, colonialism and slavery. And, and I think that, that Jenny Thomas is a really interesting test case, in part, because she's married to this Supreme Court justice, who was also a black man, and their kind of interracial relationship, uh, and the performance of it has been very um, important to the conservative far right agenda that they've been promoting for the last 30 years.
1: Something that struck me about your article about her was that – so she she's clearly has been deeply involved in this scheme, uh, mm-hmm. and she's deeply embedded within American conservatism. You know, and mm-hmm. this thing was going to go to the Supreme Court, which she's mm-hmm. deeply involved with as well. Right. Right. At the same time, she's clearly gone off the deep end with some of the QAnon <laughs> conspiracies that she seems to believe in.
0: Yeah, I mean – it, it really is very, it's a very worrying case. And she really does seem to believe some of the mo- more outrageous beliefs from the QAnon uh, conspiracy group. And, you know, just a word about the, the QAnon group. It's re- It's really easy to sort of, you know, for those of us, you know, on the progressive left to sort of laugh and roll our eyes at it. But it actually connects to you know, the earlier work that I've done and that lots of people have done on anti-Semitism. I mean, it's, it's basically a new version of the old protocols of Zion, the uh, protocols of the elders of Zion, an old anti-Semitic tract that had it, that, that Jewish people were dangerous because they were, they were plotting these schemes that involve the, the kidnap, torture and murder of, of Christian children. That is a lie. I think it's important to say. And, and it's part of what's animating the, the QAnon conspiracy theories is this belief in some kind of, you know, invisible, secretive Jewish cabal, oftentimes coded in language about the globalists, or uh, more specifically about George Soros who is a happens to be a jewish man who is also a billionaire and funds some some progressive causes but those are are really code language for what um the qanon conspiracy theorists are are saying and it does appear from the evidence reported about Jenny Thomas that she's she's on board with that um you know, dangerous, dangerous um, conspiracy
1: theory. I don't know if I, I don't know if I have the uh, uh, mental gymnastics to make the amazing segue from QAnon through yoga to the wellness industry. So I'm just going <laughs> to just pretend that I did a great segue there because like, yeah, it could there could be one. Part of the book deals with the wellness industry or the the wellness space. I was wondering, could you speak a little bit about how nice white ladies interact with that space and also about Uh, you know, the the racialized origins of things like clean eating.
0: Yes. Right. Yeah. So there's a chapter in the book on health and wellness. And part of what I talk about in that uh, chapter is, is the, first of all, the fact that this is a billion dollar business and it's global. And so this whole language around health and wellness is very profitable. And it's very profitable, especially for white women. And it appears to be it's there's not great data on actually who's buying the stuff in the health and wellness industry. But there's, it's easy to sort of figure out that, that the majority of the purchasers here are white women. So they're both the, the target audience and also the main profiteers from this uh, from this industry, and and part of what happens with the health and wellness industry, I mean, I think I think part of it is an, an actual response to the conditions of capitalism and you know white supremacist patriarchy that we live under, which which are corrosive, and so there is a need for some kind of recuperation from that. There is a need to to take some time and some space from that, but. But partly what the health and wellness industry does is it, it sells a, a bill of goods. It's a kind of, it's a kind of con or a scam or a grift, if you will. And part of what they're doing is, is, is that they're selling things that, that, that have no real impact on people's lives. And one of the, one of the things I talk about is there's something, there's some product out there called Moon Juice, which sells for something like $35 per half an ounce or something that you can sprinkle in your smoothies and it's supposed to cure all kinds of things. So there's, there's that kind of grift going on, but there are also, there's also a kind of neocolonialism in the health and wellness and, and industry. And I talk about this around, um, you know, in the U S we have this uh, former actress Gwyneth Paltrow, who sort of comes from Hollywood royalty Her parents are both also Follows a famous director, and her mother was also an actress, and she started something called Goop, which is just great fun to make fun of, actually. Um, but but part of what she does in that project is she talks about things like earthing, and there's a clip that your listeners can find online where she's talking to one of the late night hosts about earthing, and and he's asking her, so what is this? And she confesses right on late night television, you know, I don't actually know much about it, but she says it's something that, you know, is from indigenous cultures. And so we thought we would take it and share it with a wider audience. And it's just kind of this stunning example of contemporary settler colonial thinking. And in that she can, you know, not know much about a practice, which is really just walking barefoot on the ground, not know much about a practice or what's behind it or how indigenous cultures used it, but think that it's okay to just lift it and then repackage it for her, you know, subscribers, readers, you know, audience on Goop. And that that happens over and over again in this health and wellness space. One of the other things I mentioned in that chapter, which you raised in your question, is this idea of clean eating. And this is just... (laughs) This is just so preposterous, it's kind of hard to talk about but but one of the things that and you, you see this phrase around if you dip your toe at all into the into the pool of health and wellness, everything pops up with clean eating and it's not defined very well. It can mean things like eating no sugar or eating uh, no products with processed wheat in them gluten free. It can mean being vegetarian, eating no meat or it can mean all of those things at once. It's not, it's just not clear, but it doesn't have anything to do with the sort of health and safety standards. Here in the U S we have something called the FDA, the food and drug administration, which, you know, actually has real laws about, you know, what can be in food to be considered a healthy item to eat. And it's not at all in line with the FDA regulation. So it's not, it's not clean eating in that sense, but it, but it really does have these roots in, you know, colonialism and, and racism. There's a story that I tell about a, a Canadian uh, sugar company that was trying to convince its buyers that only Canadian sugar was clean to eat. And part of what they were trying to do with that was to make a distinction with imported or uh, and at the time it was um the sugar was coming from from China. And so they were trying to make a distinction and say, well, that this, this sugar that has Chinese workers putting their hands on it is not clean to eat. And, and more than that, even now, the clean eating is about a kind of bodily integrity that's seen as clean. And so recently, and this is actually not in the book, because it's sort of popped up after the the book was finished, but there's this trend on Instagram called clean girl style. And it's, again, it's, it's all these young white women who are sort of filming themselves or taking photos of themselves, eating a certain way and exercising and wearing some makeup, but not too much, you know, and they, and they're billing themselves as clean girls, you know, so, so it maps onto a kind of notion about Whiteness being clean and otherness, whether that's black or brown people, being unclean. And and there's a you know, to to get a little academic about it, there's a quite famous academic book by Mary Mary Douglas about called Purity and Danger. And and part of what she argues is that, that in every culture there's this kind of distinction between what's clean and unclean, what's pure and impure. You know, if you think about if you think about Jewish culture and and treif or kosher, right? Those kinds of distinctions, and and part of what we've done in contemporary wellness culture is that we've created an idea about wellness that is really about whiteness, and and you see this come through in things like the yoga culture. So yoga, right, is a is a practice that's that was that originated in India developed by a brown person around Hindu practices. And yet when it comes to Western cultures, it gets denuded, it gets stripped of all that um, indigenous origin, and it gets repackaged as something that's apart from and separate from society, from culture, from anything we might think of as unpleasant or unclean. And then it becomes packaged for white women In white only spaces, you know, if you look at yoga studios here in the US, they're incredibly dominated by white women. And, and there's even a story I tell in the book about this woman who was a white woman who there was a black woman who came into her this, her yoga practice. And she basically hasn't hissy fit about this black woman being in this, in this space because she says, well, I think of this as my safe space and, and how am I going to deal with this woman being in this space right now? So, I mean, it just sort of illustrates the, the whiteness of the, uh, the yoga spaces. And I think that there is something. So just to finish the point about wellness, I think that there is something in wellness culture that speaks both to you know, our need as white women for some kind of curative, we are in trouble in a particular way. And and our, our subscription to wellness sort of speaks to our unease in the world. Like there's something going on there. But it also is what I call a shallow promise. You know, the kinds of things that are on offer from the wellness industry like moon juice, you know, are not things that are really going to address the, the underlying cause of what is causing this unease, which, you know, is capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy. So that's my take on wellness. And, and just PS, by the way, this is sort of out of order, but and there is this kind of pathway from the health and, health and wellness influencers into QAnon. So they actually are connected.
2: Jesse, as you point out in the book, uh, white women have a long history of helping to keep white supremacy alive and well, from raising funds to build Confederate statues in the U.S. South, among other things. But apart from maybe buying goop or calling the manager or voting Trump, how do white women in the contemporary U.S. invest in white supremacy?
0: Yeah, that's such a great question. There are there are so many ways that um, white women in the contemporary U.S. and and beyond actually, but, but I'll speak specifically about the U S that we invest in white supremacy. And, and I talk about them in the book. And I think that one of the, you know, one of the first ways that we invest in white supremacy is that we believe in whiteness in a particular way. I mean, there's been, you know, a couple of decades of research now in, in academia that has documented that race is not a, a, a real thing it's not a biological fact, but it's a social construction. And yet it's real in its consequences. And and yet there's a way in which white women buy into whiteness as an identity, as a real biological construct that they see as natural and they see as inevitable and as shaping their experience in the world. So let me get concrete and tell you what I mean by that. So if we look at there are lots of dating apps now. And if we look at the at the data from those apps, it tells us interesting things about ourselves and about our preferences. And one of the things it tells us is that white women have a, a very strong preference for dating white men. And part of that is about you know looking for marriage partners and who white women want to marry and have children with are white men. And that is And that is in part about, you know, in sociology, we would say homophily, you know, the sameness attracts sameness. But it's also about an underlying belief in whiteness as something that's natural. And that that naturally, white people should go with other white people. And that leads to a whole other set of, of choices, which are you know, creating white families and then thinking of those white families as a kind of fortress that needs to be protected at all costs. So so white women are central in that kind of creation of white families and white families as fortress. And the white families as fortress also leads to other things like living in all white neighborhoods. And those in the United States, the way that our educational system is set up education schools are funded through housing taxes. So all white neighborhoods fund all white schools, or if people live in more integrated neighborhoods, white people tend to pull their children out of those public schools that might be integrated and put them into private schools. There's an excellent podcast um, called nice white parents Uh, that was produced by the New York times. And um, the reporter on that is Chana Jaffe Walt. And the title of nice white ladies is a little bit of an homage to that podcast. But part of what Chana Jaffee Walt does in that podcast is that she interviews progressive white women in New York city who are a hundred percent for racial integration in schools, Except when it comes to their own children. And then, even though they're active in school politics, like being on the school board, or even one woman starts a whole new school, but then they privately will send their own children to schools that are outside the public system that they pay extra for and that are predominantly or exclusively white. And that, you know, is a cycle that just repeats and repeats and repeats here. And when you try to talk to people about it, especially white women, they just sort of shrug and say, well, I just want the best for my children. And there's, you know, like my hands are tied, there's nothing I can do about it. One of the other things I talk about, specifically about how white women pass on not only white supremacy, but whiteness to their children is this fabulous work by a theologian named Thandika. And she wrote a book called Learning to be White, And part of what she argues in that book is that there's a way in which when we teach children that core belief, that whiteness is somehow natural and inevitable, that we're doing a kind of damage. We're actually creating a kind of child abuse to children because it so constricts their view of the world and their view of themselves that it it prohibits them from connecting to other people. And even, you know, even work that is looking at, you know, that is encouraging parent white parents to raise their children to be anti-racist is still coming from this perspective of, you know, we are white and we are trying to be good white people to the others, to the unfortunate, to those black and brown people who don't have it as good as we do, right? There's a kind of condescending charity model to the anti racist parenting literature that I find really abhorrent. And so that's one of the key ways, you know, that I think that white women buy into white supremacy is thinking that, that they're, you know, it goes back to the thing I was saying at the beginning about being nice white ladies. They really think that, they really think of themselves as nice white ladies and that in that space of being a nice white lady and marrying white and raising white children, that they're doing nothing wrong. And I really want to challenge those assumptions and challenge us to all do better than that.
1: Uh, Jesse, one of the other things that you tackle in the book uh, is, is the sort of um, the lie of white supremacy and the, the way that it negatively affects white women. I was wondering if you could speak to some of the reasons why white women should divest from white, cyber, white supremacy.
0: Yeah, thanks for that question yeah, white supremacy is a lie and we should divest from it. We don't, we don't see that though. You know, a lot of times as white women, we think that we're pursuing a dream, you know, and that part of, if we, you know, adhere to being a nice white lady, that there's some reward at the end of it for us. But in fact, you know, there's this, this really interesting research here in the U S and it, it sometimes gets referred to as deaths of despair, um, there are a couple of researchers at, at Princeton who've written a book about this, and and part of what they find is that there's this increase in mortality. That is, it's an epidemiological way of talking about rates of death, and and typically in a Western industrialized society like the U.S., mortality rates, rates of death, go down as you know we get better plumbing, better nutrition, those kinds of things. It leads to longer life. And, and part of what's been happening recently in the U.S. is that there's been an, a decline in longevity, the reverse of saying there's been an increase in mortality. And what these researchers have found is that the, the increase in mortality among white people has been these deaths of despair. And those are alcohol related, drug, specifically opioid related, and suicides with uh, often with firearms right and so and part of what these researchers talk about is um is the white working class and sort of how this is um, a part of the you know result of late stage capitalism and the divestment in in working class jobs but but there's a finding that they they can explain and that epidemiologists have have called a kind of mystery and that is that suicide deaths, for white women who are in the age range of 45 to 64, so middle-aged white women, is skyrocketing. The the numbers are really off the charts, and and they don't have a good explanation for this. And I think the explanation, at least in part, has got to be about the corrosiveness of investing in being a nice white lady. I think that there's something about, being a white woman in this culture, where when you're younger, say, when you're, you know, 18 to 40 or 45, then you have a kind of value in the culture, right? You are, you are the ideal, even if you don't feel like you fit the ideal or live up to the ideal, but you're the ideal of what the culture holds out as the most valuable, the most beautiful, the most deserving of all the social resources. And part of what happens in our culture, because we don't value people who are older, and we don't value women, is that when white women hit middle age, we began to realize that our value in the culture is declining. And I think that in a society where drugs and opioids and guns are so readily available, that that realization that we've been sold a bill of goods, that the the promise of being a nice white lady actually doesn't lead to anything. Actually there's no there's no benefit to it in the end. Leads to this kind of corrosive interior world where we wonder what the point of it all is. And I think that's part of what's going on with these deaths of despair. And I think that it it really speaks to the reason that we as nice white ladies have got to learn ways to divest from whiteness, to to walk away from this false belief in our own whiteness, our own superiority, and our own natural benevolence that just doesn't exist. It's not it's not real humanity. And I just want to say this that there that on the other side of divesting from whiteness, there's real joy and community because what you begin to see is that. Oh, I'm just a human being like everybody else. I am in this world like everyone else. I'm no better. I'm no worse. I'm just part of humanity. And that is the real promise of divesting from whiteness for all of us.
1: Well, that's all we have time for on the radio version of the show, but we'll have a few more questions with Dr. Daniels on the podcast, which you can find at 3CR.org.au slash Yer na Well, Jesse, thanks so much for joining us. If people want to follow you on Twitter, you are at Jesse NYC, and the book, of course, is Nice White Ladies. Thanks for
0: coming on. Yeah, great. Happy to be here. Thanks for having Thanks for having me. Well, Andy, that's our show.
1: Yes, Kim. <laughs> we will we'll be back next week. See you later. We will. See ya.
2: No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail laws now.
0: Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population.
2: 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced.
0: ISJA Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition,
2: which can be found on ISJA Melbourne's Facebook page.
0: Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.